Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us for another episode of Living History. As always, wonderful to have your company. And gee, we've had some interesting topics lately and we've been getting a lot of feedback about some of the subjects we've had lately. So if you haven't uh, listened to recent episodes, please go back and do that and continue to send in your comments, your comments, your questions. Just if you want to say day, if you want to interact with us, please uh, do send in your comments through social media. It's always great to hear from you. Um, something I have to announce, the Cowra Breakout book is now available. I've been talking about this on and off for, for months now. Uh, the book is available. It's now in bookshops Australia-wide. So look out for the Cowra Breakout. I, you know, it was a great, uh, a great project that I've, I've done over the last couple of years, and it's really fantastic that it's, it's out and in bookshops now. So look out for that one. We're not here to talk about the Cowra Breakout today. We've got a, another book, which is I think everyone is going to find absolutely fascinating. It's a fantastic book that I have a copy of here called Lessons from History, and it's a collection of chapters detailing um, how the lessons of history can help us solve problems in modern Australia, a, a, fan, a fascinating concept. And I've got one of the editors here with us to discuss this in more detail. It's Professor David Lowe. David, thank you very much for joining us to talk about this great book. Great pleasure, man. Looking forward to it. Now, I should say I've been dipping in and out of this book into uh, you know chapters of interest, and I think that's the way most people will approach it. It's not necessarily a book that's designed to be read from cover to cover, but it is a fascinating collection of short pieces that detail the lessons we can learn from history. Just tell us the story. Give us an overview of how this book came to be and what you and the other editors are trying to achieve with it. Sure. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, look, it, it stems from um, really an organisation, a network, which is called the Australian Policy and History Network, which has been running for about 10 years now. And it's headed by those of us at Deakin, but also in conjunction with a couple of other unis. And we meet occasionally and try to encourage the ways in which historians can better be seen by those in decision-making positions. So, you know, ensuring that historians can connect sometimes with journalists, sometimes directly with people in Canberra or other state governments, just so that the historical work that's been done might better inform conversations around big policy issues. So that organisation that's been running for about 10 years, every now and then has some set-piece conferences, and one was a couple of years ago, which generated a lot of the content for this book, but we then went out and secured some more where we thought there were interesting gaps that needed to be filled and we knew of interesting work being done. And the, and the brief was this. You had to write 
in a very direct, accessible form. Um, you know, sometimes academics write in, in longer forms and not always with the, the, the kind of direct language that you need in order to be easily digested, um, getting a message across quickly for those who might be time poor people, just, just wanting to, to get a central message quite quickly and no more than about 4,000 words. So that was the brief. And um, we're really delighted with the results because you know we've got uh, you know 22 chapters and I think 31 different historians when you count some co-authoring. And I think it, you know, it covers a really rich range of different policy issues, which are very kind of apposite at the moment. We, we know that some of the low hanging fruit in terms of policy um, decision-making has been picked and some of the toughest stuff remains for us in Australia. And I hope this book goes some way towards addressing some of that tough stuff. Yeah, I think it's it's a great point you make. And I'm, I'm going to um, – I've got the, the book in front of me now, and I'm just going to dig in just at random to give people an idea of the sorts of things that we're talking about here. So, you know, I'm looking at random chapters here. Um, one that I read and really enjoyed yesterday was War with China, What Can History Teach Us? Uh, is obviously a, a really good one. Um, one that you wrote, Foreign Aid, Australia's Reputation at Stake. Uh, we've got things to do with um, why soldiers commit war crimes, which is particularly relevant at the moment with all the investigations going on. The Muslim problem in Australia, the role of political leadership, uh, Muslim problem in quote marks, I would put there. Um, there's articles, uh, there's, would you call them articles? Is that the first thing? Chapters? Yeah, short, short I mean, chapters, How do you I refer guess. to them? Yeah, probably short, short chapters. chapters. But but you're right, they're, they're meant to be of a, a length that you could almost call articles. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to. Um, you know, basically lighten the the importance of these by calling them articles. But there's some fascinating things. You know, obviously the First Nations people, the role of women, um, the, the the role of federation. Uh, it, it's it's just some fascinating topics. I mean, and I want to talk about a few of those in a little bit more detail. But before we start, it's a pretty um, it's a pretty high task you've set for yourselves and the writers of this book. Uh, let's talk about the nature of history as it exists in 2022. We 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 hear these stories and these cliches about unless we learn the lessons of history, we're doomed to repeat them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Can history actually? I don't want this to be a trite question, but can history actually play a role in the decisions that we make in the modern world? Yeah, look, I think the answer is yes, um, but not in a simple way. Um, you know, the the, the overarching message, I think, if you want to bundle up this collection of chapters, the overarching message is that rich context is really important to good decision making. And sometimes that rich context isn't doesn't take the form of the simple lesson from what happened in the past is that you must do this next. Um, in the chapter that you mention on the problem with China and the risk of war, uh, Hugh White goes out of his way to say that we reach too readily, including our political leaders sometimes, we reach too easily for simple analogies, in, in particular the Munich and the appeasement thing. And actually the circumstances are often pretty different. So what that um, message of Hughes' chapter, and I think it's a theme that runs throughout the book, is that history is inevitably close to policymaking even when policymakers don't you know, acknowledge it. They're always thinking about where we've come from and what, what's been tried. And there is always this human tendency to draw on an analogy from the past. Sometimes that analogy is done pretty clumsily, um, as in the Munich kind of, you know, Munich's everywhere, appeasement's everywhere the moment you, you talk about a possible confrontation with another country. And I think, you know, the point of that chapter, or one of the many points of that terrific chapter, 
which can carry over into the rest of the book to some extent, is that in many ways what historians need to be doing is to providing the the richness and the detail of past experiences in order that people can actually think their way through problems. They can actually position themselves in relation to what's happened, what, what didn't happen. And so it might be about making choices not to do things as much as, you know, a simple lesson, this plus this equals this. That's certainly not the, the tenor of the book. So, so to go to your question, um, yes, I think history is always close to policymaking. And I think it should be um, better acknowledged at times than it is. And what we hope this book will do is not so much provide simple lessons from the past, but just encourage policymakers to pause, think through things, often see differences from the past as much as you know similarities, and try to think through you know which ways, which decisions they might best make now. Well, you and your fellow writers have certainly posed a lot of important questions and and come up with some answers to them as well. But are policymakers in particular listening to to the words that you are saying? It's hard. Um, sometimes yes, and and you know occasionally we know that um, there are a few politicians. Andrew Lee, for example, you might know Andrew's a, a an intellectual academic, and he's got a chapter in this book. And one of his hobbies um, in Parliament is also to check on what people are reading. All the MPs in Canberra are reading. And you find that there is a lot of biography being read usually by members over their summer breaks and so on, and a smattering of historical works. So that's sort of encouraging for us. You know, the, the, the pollies in Canberra do read history and they love biography, which is by, by definition historical as well. And, and so there's some encouragement there, but we also need to acknowledge that, you know, people are incredibly time poor. And, and often it's the staffers. If this book can be read by some staffers in, in offices of uh, politicians and feed those ideas back when they get the chance, that would be a good result too. It might. This might be a question that is a little bit like asking you to pick sort of your favourite children, but there is a lot of content in there. So can we can we talk about some of the ones that you feel? What are some of the topics in here that you feel are some of not your favourites, but let's say the most important topics that uh, that and and uh, you know the greatest achievements of the book? Yeah, it is hard. Um, look, the one we've been talking about is very important. It's just so topical. The one in terms of the confrontation with China and how to deal with that, and we've talked a little bit about that. Um, I also like the um, the general, there are three fairly general essays at the or chapters at the start of the book, which just talk about the joys and also the perils of this kind of exercise. Um, we, historians don't like to be accused of instrumentalism, just writing for a certain policy purpose. They like to preserve that kind of you know contribution to knowledge, curiosity-driven research, untrammeled by any particular purpose for that Canberra might want. And that, that tension is real, but I think, you know, we, we negotiate the tension okay. I think it is a tension that I, I find an interesting one for historians to keep thinking about. In terms of topics, um, you mentioned briefly my own chapter. I, I was struck in thinking about the history of foreign aid and watching the budget allocations go up and down and all over the place. And it always tends to be one of the first things that gets the chop when times are tough, budget-wise, foreign aid. And yet, in looking at the history of Australia's provision of foreign aid since World War II, I did draw a tentative conclusion that there's enough evidence to show that if you actually talk to the Australian people about foreign aid in terms of Australia's reputation overseas, there's engagement. There's, there's room to believe that 
people will respond imaginatively to foreign aid as a really important dimension of Australia's international reputation. We compare ourselves to others. You know, when the British suddenly chucked a lot of foreign aid, the Australian public were up in arms, according to a public opinion poll, because the Brits were doing more than we were. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One of the things I think we've missed out in foreign aid is, is this kind of... Um, capacity to by governments to try and sell it in hard terms by hard I mean you know security this will help our security in the Pacific if we do this and it's actually a softer sense of reputation that's probably more important to people in terms of continuous engagement with what it is to provide foreign aid overseas so that was my own um, you know fascinating from my point of view fascinating kind of survey of what we've been doing since World War II I really enjoy a couple of chapters towards the end of the book. Lyndon McGarrity, my fellow editor, writes about the ways in which repeatedly Australian governments have had grandiose ideas about the north, you know, the northern half of Australia, whether it's building great pipelines to channel water from the north to the south or huge kind of expansive schemes of agriculture that haven't really worked out. And yet he says, Really, you know, if you look, if you really look hard, what they'd be much better off doing is providing the kind of sense of civic amenity, basic resourcing that the rest of Australia enjoys and, and not, not wasting quite so much money on grandiose schemes, but just getting the basics right. And I think that's a very interesting kind of story of successive failures and grandiose schemes that were ill-placed. There's a chapter on um, electricity generation, which is, I think, to the front of many people's minds at the moment. And Jeff Hole, who's a terrific PhD student uh, here at Deakin, he just writes about the the ways the history of electricity basically since it arrived in Australia and talks about the kind of successive ways in which state governments led the way. Then there was a desire for a more federal approach. Um, and recently, of course, we've got an urgent need to regulate in ways that we might better approach that net zero target whilst trying desperately to keep costs down. So that story of um, both state and federal relations around electricity generation is really rich context. I'm using that word a lot, that rich context for how we see our electricity problems today. I think you've, um, you've touched on something that I noted about the book because there's a couple of subjects, and I say this with all due respect, that would be considered fairly dry subjects, you know, electricity, um, water, various things like yeah, the nature of federation you know there's there's some fair there's some topics in here that i think would be uh on the face of them considered relatively dry topics but it's it, it, the thing that i loved about this was how well they were presented and that they were presented in an engaging way and in particular a relevant way i think occasionally historians 
can struggle to demonstrate relevance of a particular topic, even if we're experts in the subject. But but was that a was that a struggle for you and your uh, your fellow editors to bring the best out of these historians and to 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 drop the academic speak and present it in a way that uh, that would be absorbable by people in the street? It's a good question, Matt. And and generally, the answer is we didn't try to ha- we didn't have to try to work too hard. The people we had on board the project were those who we knew could write in a really direct, engaging way. There's a little bit of toing and froing, and often that word length is really hard. You know, when you oblige historians to stick to around four thousand words, that's tough. So that was perhaps one of the biggest struggles. But yes, a little bit of toing and froing. It's, it's not a lot of words, is it? I mean, it's it isn't. for a lot of good ideas. Four thousand words is not a lot to uh, to get them across. No, look, most books, um, most you know, academic books have chapters around ten thousand plus. Most journal articles the history historians write tend to be sort of seven to eight thousand plus. So it's a it's a it's a big reduction. But uh, as I said, pleasingly, everyone was very on board the task, and maybe that goes to the their sense of the the state we are in, the time we are in. I mean, under, underpinning the whole enterprise, of course, Matt, is this notion that the sense of alarm that historians, you know, do feel that Australia's got some pretty big challenges and we feel that we've been marginalised and it's time to step up. So I think that sense of, you know, now is the time, we we're on a bit of a mission here, was one of the driving forces that helped bring the book together. Well, there's obviously some fairly big ticket items in there, you know, potential wars with China, uh, the environment, um, you know, Australia and its sense of governance, um, reconciliation with First Nations people, they, these sorts of things. But there were some other things in there I, I particularly enjoyed as well as a, as a, as a, as a, as a new father, actually. I uh, really enjoyed the chapter on um, working mothers and childcare policy. And there was a couple of very strong articles about the role of women in Australia, which I think is one of those subjects that, that is very important to many people in the country, but perhaps gets a little bit drowned out in the noise of some of the some of the um, you know other issues that are going on. So I thought those were some of the um, most engaging chapters uh, in the book. Just tell us a little bit about those more um, you know the more social, the more human issues. Yeah, no, thanks, Long. Well, glad you enjoyed those too. And sometimes, including the chapters that you're talking about, sometimes Australia's history of policy isn't so bad, but it's the way in which implementation has lagged behind. There's the problem, and that includes some of the policies around working mothers, where the policy framework doesn't look that bad, and that's I think that one of the messages of the chapter. But when you drill down to into it, you see that there's an over reliance on defining the woman as an economic contributor, as opposed to a sense of motherhood that is more rounded and more social, and including including the notion of fatherhood too, and it's that more rounded social kind of enterprise that actually gets you a better result if you actually see mothering and fathering as something other than you know what it means for the economy you actually get a better result that in turn will be better for the economy which is one of i think the main messages of the of that um that terrific chapter that you're talking about so yes and again um similarly in relation to some of the um, indigenous policy that's evolved australians can probably be reasonably happy with some of the evolution of um, policy that goes towards reconciliation and greater opportunities for Indigenous Australians, but often in the way in which it's rolled out and the implementation, there have been some pretty significant problems. Again, there's a chapter that talks about the the Indigenous agency. So in other words, where Canberra has not kept up with its grand ideals and its good policies, um, Indigenous organisations have actually maintain the momentum themselves. And that's a good story to hear as well. So again, as you say, there's some subterranean things that I think are both important messages for us, 
and some bright notes too. I mean, there's some certainly some gaps that need filling, but there's some good stories too about the agency of others where other, whether it be Canberra or other state governments, where people have left off doing the best they could in policy realms. Well, on that subject, overall, is this a book of doom and gloom from your opinion, or is it a book of hope, or is it somewhere in between? Yeah, look, I think it's. I think there's a fair bit of hope. I, I did. I did stress a few minutes ago that you know there was this sense of urgency by historians. Now is the time. We do feel that. I think I can collect, speak collectively for us. We do feel that you know Australia's got some fairly formidable challenges ahead, and you know our current prime minister is saying the same. But I do think there's enough hope in this. Um, I do think you know often it's um, the really, really strong need to pause and take stock of what we've been doing, the, the, the sense that there are really imaginative ideas out there and just enabling them to come to the fore better than we've done you know, previously. Now, obviously, the, the last 10 years of um, problems around the climate crisis is one example of you know, a terrible example of climate of, of policy having gone wrong. We, we can recover and, you know, there's a, there's a note of crisis and hope, I think, in the book on that score in one, one chapter. But also, if we take another chapter we haven't spoken about yet, and that is um, the, the issue of war crimes um, committed by Australian soldiers overseas, and another chapter I'm connecting to here, another chapter on the rise of right-wing extremism in Australia. Both of those chapters suggest that, yes, we can do things from the top. We can expect some um, more from our commanders in the armed forces, or we can expect more from our politicians um, in, in relation to signalling around extremism. But often it's when we actually, you know, really instill at all levels of society expectations of better behaviour, of stronger standards. So it's not just from a few at the top, it's rolling out through education programs, it's ensuring that there's harmony between federal and state governments, it's expecting standards of behaviour in big corporations. If we can actually, you know, work our way through levels of society and implementing better policies, then there's a fair bit of hope, I think, in affecting the kinds of change that we need to be making. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball a little bit, but if, if in, say, five years you looked back on this book, what would you like to have seen happen to feel that the book contributed and did what you wanted it to do and was a success? Is there something that you envisage from this book that you would hope that would happen, some change that would come about? Yeah, that's a really good question. Historians in other parts of the world have argued for things like, you know, a historical advisor to the President of the United States. Um, some colleagues in the US tried to say that it, Historians are so important in policy-making decisions that you need that. Now, that, that idea didn't, didn't get up, um, and I suspect it probably wouldn't get up in Australia either. One thing, perhaps a more modest thing to hope for, is a little bit less reliance by governments on consultancy exercises. Um, we've had a lot of money spent on consultants in previous recent governments in Australia. And, you know, if you get a big consultancy company to look at a policy issue the first quarter or one third of their exercise is usually historical. They say, this is what's happened in the past. And it's usually pretty lousy. I've looked at a few of these things. It's not very good. Um, so a modest hope by me would be that governments actually draw on historians a bit more for some of this stuff. They'd probably save money. We're not as expensive. And I think they'd get a better quality result. 
So th these are modest modest um, hopes, but I, you know, at a general level, if you, if you wanted me to generalise, that would be one thing I'd really like to see. Well, I mean, it's at the very least, it's it's getting some great conversations started, which I think are important. And and again, I think we'd all agree that you know, particularly you and I would uh, restate the importance of history and historians in telling those stories. So I found it a really compelling read, and I'd encourage everyone to go out and grab a copy. Um, it's uh, it's lessons from history, leading historians tackle Australia's greatest challenges. Um, what, what's next for you, David? What's the, what's the next project you're working on now? Um, there are a couple, Matt. One is a, um, a history of the Colombo Plan. Uh, many, many Australians might might remember the. We, we're probably familiar with the new Colombo Plan at the moment, which sends Australian students over to have experiences in Asia. I'm writing a history of the original one, which was more the reverse about Australia's assistance for development in South and Southeast Asia after World War II. Um, and another is a big history, a conceptual history of national security in Australia, and that is. It basically, the starting point for that project, again, it little, it, there's a connection with this book because the starting jumping point is that Canberra seems to have accumulated a lot of new um, infrastructure and resources around national security as something that is terrorism, it's cyber security and um, you know, foreign threats. My argument is that actually national security is, needs to be looked at more holistically. It's, it's been a term that's been with us since the 1930s. And often Australians have engaged with that concept more when it's meant when it's been construed by meaning you know a decent life, um, basic economic standards, um, other things, not just these high tech kind of things that we're facing in more recent times. Well, it's all fascinating work that you're doing, David, and important work. So thank you very much for for persisting with it. And if you're listening to this or watching this video, um, the book is Lessons from History. I, I thoroughly recommend picking it up. But uh, David, thank you so much for joining us on Living History. It's a great pleasure, Matt. All the best. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.